me in Romans chapter 9. Romans 9. Romans 9, and let's do the smart thing and have a word of prayer before we get started. Heavenly Father, as always, just good to be here, and we just pray that you would teach and we would listen. Let your spirit guide and direct the message and the lesson. And Lord, we just pray that you'd be with everything going on in the back. And just pray you'd be with the kids back there and the teachers and uh, just the nursery on up. And we say thank you for the time to meet here. We just thank you and we praise you in your name. Amen. Well, we're finally done with Romans chapter 8. I think we spent five weeks in Romans chapter 8. And as we've said numerous times out here, Romans chapter 8 was a transitional chapter. It finished the topics from Romans 1 through 7, introduced the topics from Romans 9 on. And so there's a lot of things to go over there in Romans 8. Well, in Romans 9, we start some new stuff. Really, Romans 9, 10, and 11 all deal with the same topic. Israel, us, and salvation. What he does is he uses Israel as an example of being saved, but also Israel as an example of rejecting salvation. And he goes on to how Israel was given all this opportunity, and they rejected the Lord. What does that mean for us, that when Israel rejected the gospel, how do we have the gospel? Now, in a perfect world, it'd be great if we could do Romans 9, 10, and 11 all at once. So I checked, and we're going to probably be here at about 2, maybe 3, and we'll get it done today. You're, you're, Joe, you're laughing, but we're going to have to break it up. That's just what we're going to have to do. So what we're going to do is these nuggets, and it kind of feels a little choppy, and I feel bad for that because it's such a beautiful topic altogether at once. But I hope that you'll see the flow of this as we go through it. So we're going to start here in Romans 9. And we'll start right at the beginning, verse 1. It says, I tell the truth in Christ, I'm not lying. My conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit. That I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my countrymen, according to the flesh. Listen to what Paul's saying there. Don't, don't skip over this. Verse 3. He's saying he loves Israel so much. He loves the Jews so much. He's saying, I would want to give up my spot in heaven, my relationship with Jesus, so that they could be saved. That's a huge statement. I mean, that, that's a huge statement to say, I would want to give up my place in heaven, so that way Israel could be saved. I'm going to tell you right now, in the 19 years I've been saved, I have never prayed that for anybody. <laughs> that's a big thing. I remember hearing the story of a pastor teaching on this one time, and he told the story how there was two pastors that used to get together, him and another guy. And they would get together and pray for people. And they had this one guy that they really just felt a burden for. Really, their heart was really heavy for him. And I can't remember the name. We'll just say his name was Bill. And so the one pastor would pray for Bill. You know, Lord, we just pray for, for, for Bill's heart. We pray for Bill's heart to soften. We pray for Bill to come to know you personally. And the other pastor that was telling the story would agree with this and say, yes, Lord, we pray for Bill. And then this other pastor felt so strongly about this. He goes, Lord, I, I pray for Bill so much. Lord, I, 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 will, I will give up my spot, my, my relationship with you for Bill. And the other pastor said he couldn't pray that, so he said, yes, Lord, he'll give up his spot for his relationship. <laughs> and that's the truth of the matter. As we look at this, what Paul is saying is, I'll give up my spot, I'll be cursed from Christ for the Jews. Wow. Moses did the same thing back in Exodus 32. If you remember the story, they were up on the mountain, they came back down from the mountain, and they'd set up this golden calf, and so they were worshiping this idol of a golden calf. Oh, God was angry. Moses knew God was angry. So as the, as the lesson goes on there, Moses says to God, Take me. Let your anger be on me and not on them. And he says, I'll take the punishment. I'll take the curse. Just let them go. Now, God has a great response, which we'll get into in the next couple weeks. God comes back, kind of paraphrased here, and he goes, I will have mercy on those I choose to have mercy, and I will judge on those who I have choose to judge. That's one of the points is you can't do this. You can't pass your salvation on. This is not like a little uh, get-out-of-jail coupon. Where it's like, you know what? Well, I got saved, and I've really enjoyed this salvation for a while, but I really like Bill, so Bill, here's my coupon. 
You have salvation now, and I'll take hell for you. You can't do that. I can't pass my salvation on to someone. Hence that phrase that we throw around all the time, personal relationship with Jesus Christ. But the point is, Paul says, I wish I could do that. What a heart. Did you catch verse 2? I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart. His heart broke over people that weren't saved. Boy, we're guilty of this, aren't we? As a church, as a nation, does our heart break over people that aren't saved? I mean, look at these words again. Great sorrow, continual grief. Some of your translations, unending grief, unceasing anguish. That's how much his heart hurt for these people that weren't saved. Now, the truth of the matter is, I look at verse 2, I desire that. I want that. I want to have my heart hurt. I want to have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart for people. But I'm being honest. Sometimes people that aren't saved don't break my heart. Sometimes they annoy me. And I'm being honest, and you guys can lie there and say you're not, but I'll be honest. Sometimes they get to me. You know why they get to me? Because sometimes there are situations in life they just keep repeating the same problems over and over again, and then they come running back. They go right up to the cliff, and they jump over the cliff, and they run right into the mud, and then they come back and say, oh, will you pray for me? Oh, I don't want to do this anymore. I want my life to be different. I'm so sorry with my life. And I say, yeah, yeah, I've heard this all before. So we'll clean you up. We'll pray for you. We'll see you at church while, and then boom, you disappear again. I want to have great sorrow and continual grief, but sometimes I have frustration. I have, dare I say, annoyance. So I felt so convicted over this verse. Because I didn't have the great sorrow and continued grief. I looked up the word sorrow to see what it literally meant, and now I feel a lot better. Because that word sorrow can actually be translated annoyance. So you can actually be biblical now saying you're annoyed with people, and it's a biblical thing. But here's the point of being annoyed by them. You're not annoyed by them to the point of being angry. You're annoyed by them because you're like, oh, why can't you see the truth? Why can't you see what Christ can do for your life? Why can't you see... That when you're living in your life, in your marriage, in your work without the Lord, that you're just getting by. You're not really living. That's one of the things I always think about. Jesus said, I've come that you may have life and have it more abundantly. I know a lot of people that are quote-unquote happy in their life. Decent job, decent marriage, decent life. I don't want decent. I want them to have an abundant life in Christ. Cup overflowing. And so sometimes I get annoyed. But it's not annoying to the point of anger. It's annoying of... I want this so bad for you. Even Christ did this. If you remember correctly, just the day before they arrested Jesus, he has this great passage in Matthew 23 where he laments over Jerusalem. He said, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I've wanted to gather you up as a mother hen gathers up her little chicks. He says, That's what I wanted to do. Jesus wanted to do that. There was another passage, too, where Jesus was annoyed, I think. That's my opinion. Where he looked up to heaven and he said, How much longer shall I bear with you? <laughs> Haven't you had those moments? Haven't you had those moments of people that you really love, they're not saved, and in one hand, I always say this, you want to hug them, in the other hand, you want to choke them. Well, sometimes that happens. But the point is, we care so deeply for them, we want them to know Christ. A great sorrow, continual grief. Look at this verse 1. I tell the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience also bearing witness with me. Paul's saying, I am emphatic about this. I'm honest about this. My heart breaks. God help us as individuals and also corporately as a church, to have a heart that breaks. Because right now what happens a lot of times, and I do this myself too, and I'm not thinking of anybody individual because I do it, everybody does it. People come up to me and say, boy, Pastor, you pray for me. Why? Boy, work's really tough. School's really tough. I got a family event coming up, whatever it is. Oh, what's going on? Oh, I work with all these people. And they just, they just frustrate me. You know, I, I work with these people that frustrate me. I go to school with these people that frustrate me. I got this family event coming up. I'm going to be around all these people that frustrate me. They're not saved. And it's just really, really tough. And so what do we normally do? Oh, boy, we'll pray for you. We'll pray for strength for you. 
I had to call myself and start thinking about that. Why are we praying for strength for you? We should be praying for them to come to know Jesus. Your, your, your job is to go into the unbelieving world and be a light and a witness. Now, before you think I'm picking on you, I do the same thing. Pray for me. I have to deal with non-believers. Well, that's what you're supposed to do. We're supposed to deal with non-believers. We're, we're supposed to be around them. We're supposed to have a heart that hurts for them. We're not supposed to look at them like the plague and say, gosh, he's not saved, and I have to work with them for eight, nine, ten hours? Yeah, because you're going to be a witness to him for eight, nine, ten hours. God, help us to have, verse 2, great sorrow and continual grief in my heart for those that don't know Christ. See, here's the thing. The world looks at Christianity as taking some type of joy when non-believers die. You see the people picketing things, and I see their signs, and some of their signs can't be repeated in church. And they represent God as just being thrilled to death that he can fill hell up with more souls. That is the farthest thing from the truth. Just as Paul's heart broke for non-believers, the Lord does too. You don't need to turn there, but please write this verse down. Ezekiel 33.11 Ezekiel 33:11 As I live says the Lord God I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked but that the wicked turn from his evil ways and live turn turn from your evil ways Listen to that one more time As I live says the Lord God I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked but that the wicked turn from his way and live turn turn from your evil ways He repeats this again in Ezekiel 18 and in 2 Peter 3:9 comes right out and says that God desires all men to be saved. God's heart breaks for those that are lost. God's heart hurts for those that don't know Christ. Do we have that same heart? Do we lament like Jesus did? Does our heart break like Paul's does? Or do we see them as a problem? Something we have to walk through, step over in my life. And we're not understanding what our role is as a light and a witness for Christ. That is why we are here. And the thing is, using the example of the Israelites... They were given such an opportunity. My, they were given such an opportunity. Look at this right here. Look at the opportunity that was given to them in verse 4. Who are Israelites? To whom pertain the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God, and the promises, of whom are the fathers, and from whom, according to the flesh, Christ came, who is over all the eternally blessed God. Amen. Talk about being born with a silver spoon in your mouth. The Jews were given every opportunity to know who God was. Look at the first one here. The Israelites, to whom pertain the adoption. God chose them. He didn't choose the Philistines. He didn't choose the Amicalites. He didn't choose the Moabites. He chose Israel. Now, why did he choose Israel? The answer is given in Deuteronomy 7, 7, if you want to study that out. Deuteronomy 7, 7. God comes out and says, I did not choose you because you're a great nation. He goes, I chose you because you're a weak nation. So that way, when Israel was blessed and Israel tasted success in the world, no one could look and say, well, that wasn't because of your God. You guys were just a blessed people, a big people, a mighty people. No, he chose the low of the low to say that when you guys are elevated, only the world could know and would know that it had to be God that did it. They were adopted. Next one, the glory. Once again, no other nation was given the presence of God. Israel, in their temple, and their tabernacle, the presence of God dwelt. What an amazing thing there to have the glory. The next one, the covenants. Well, we know the covenants. He made a covenant with Abraham. He made a covenant with David. What a blessing that was. The giving of the law. They were given the law. No one else was. The service of God. They had the right and opportunity to be priests serving in the temple. And the next one, the promises. Promises of being a nation. The promise of land. The promise of a Messiah. Verse 5, they had the fathers. They had Abraham. They had Isaac. They had Jacob. And lastly, most importantly, they had Christ. They had every opportunity. sad part is, look at verse 6. But it's not that the word of God has not taken effect. For not all Israel who are Israel. They were given all this opportunity, they still rejected. 
Now, it's easy for us to sit here and just pick on them and think, boy, if I was back during their time and I saw the Red Sea being parted, I saw the manna, I saw the quail, I saw Moses come down, I wouldn't be that way. It's easy to say that. It'd be easy to say I would be one that wouldn't forsake Jesus on the cross. They were given so much opportunity and they rejected. You know what? I look at sometimes us as a nation, as a group of people. We've been given so much opportunity too. And how many times have we rejected? Now don't raise your hand. Just don't embarrass me and embarrass you. How many of you had a hard time finding your Bible this morning? How many of you have more than one Bible? It's embarrassing to me. I have, I don't know how many Bibles I have. And sometimes I'm looking for a Bible. Bibles are all over the place. So much opportunity read and study and I choose not to. I can get in my car right now and I can have five Christian radio stations that come in clearly I could listen to. I can go home and flip on my television and see nearly any type of Christian programming I want. That's right there. I have numerous opportunities to go to numerous church services, serve in numerous capacities, have fellowship with other numerous believers. I live in a nation where I have the freedom to go into work and share about Jesus Christ. And we're meeting here freely and openly in a very nice, warm, heated, lit building without any fear of consequences. We've been born with a silver spoon in our mouth. We have opportunity, and the truth of the matter is, how often do we forsake that? You know, I find it very difficult to believe that someone could grow up in America and, and not know about God. There's at least two times a year, Easter and Christmas, where our nation will at least for a momentary tiny little stop acknowledge something religious about Easter and Christmas. They may not put a lot of emphasis on it, but they'll at least acknowledge it. It would be very difficult to grow up in this nation and get to your middle years of life and say, I've never heard of Jesus. Who's this God thing you keep talking about? We have opportunity after opportunity after opportunity, and with that opportunity comes responsibility. And with that responsibility comes follow-through. Are we doing what we can to go deeper in our walk in relationship with Christ? As we joke out here a lot, there's not instant judgment. If you sin, you don't immediately get zapped by lightning. God has grace. Sometimes I wonder, would we be a little more fervent for the Lord if we immediately did get zapped? Kind of spur us on. God doesn't want us to do it because we have to. He wants us to do it because we choose to. One of the things that we do at the Irvin House is Dawn has this little phrase she likes to use called happy heart. When the boys do something wrong and we want them to obey out of a happy heart, not because they would get disciplined if they don't, not because of fear of discipline, not because of fear of consequences. We want them to do it because it's right. So if we ask them to do something and they kind of grumble about it, if you ask them, what's Philippians 2.14 say? They know the verse, do all things without complaining. So happy heart, do it the right way. Don't just obey, don't just do it. We want you to have a happy heart about it. Well, same thing happens here with us. How many of us do things for the Lord as we have to? I should probably read tonight. I should probably pray. Yeah, I should probably get up and go to church today. I should probably serve in the back because they keep nagging and nagging. And if they don't stop nagging, Tony will come ask me individually, and that would be really awkward. You know, we do those type of things. God wants the happy heart. Tony always teases me, because every now and then I'll do a message, and it's about service or ministry. And I'll say, if you're serving someplace or ministering someplace out of obligation, you're not led to do it. The last thing we want is you to do it. We appreciate your willingness to give up time, but we want you to do it because you see the deeper spiritual impact of teaching kids, of cleaning, of, of serving someplace. Tony says, don't ever teach that, because every time you do that, I always have a couple of people come up to me and say, hey, I'm not called. You know, I got the greatest out now. Pastor said, if you're not called, I'm not called. No, but we have to stop and say, where is your heart? Is your heart in the right spot? I know people that serve... Because they have to. I know people and marriages 
that put on a happy face? Because they have to. People that go to work and are nice to the mean people because they have to. You only can do the have to thing for so long. How's the heart? The Jews, boy, they look good. Opportunity. But their heart wasn't where it was supposed to be. So hence verse 6. It's not that the word of God has taken no effect, for they are not all Israel who are of Israel. It's not that God's word failed. It's not that the promises failed. The truth of the matter is some of the people that were Jewish, verse 6, they didn't want the Jewish Messiah. I mean, that's the thing. I can remember when I first got saved. First got saved, almost 19 years ago. I, I remember when I first started telling people about the Lord. I, I shared with you before when I first got saved, it was, it was my obligation to shove the Bible down every single person's throat that ever existed, and that's what I was going to do. And I can remember distinctly one time being in the cafeteria at school, sharing Christ with somebody, telling about the Lord. We built up to this great altar call moment of, do you want to accept Jesus? And he said, no. I didn't know what to do. So I pushed it. So he got up and left, and he went to the bathroom. You know what I did? I followed him into the bathroom. <laughs> kind of stalkish, I know. But the point was, how could someone not want Jesus? I mean, that just blew my mind. How could someone not want Christ? Still to this day, we'll be doing a message or talking about the Lord, and someone's asking questions, and, and, and you, you bring up the idea of getting to know Christ personally, and they're like not interested. I, I, what? I don't know what to say to that. And I look at verse 6. Not all Israel who are of Israel. There were Jews that were given all these opportunities, and they didn't want it. Verse 7. Nor are they all children because they are the seed of Abraham, but an Isaac your seed shall be called. That is, those who are the children of the flesh. These are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as the seed. See, what God is saying here is there's children of the flesh, but there's also the spiritual children too. Yes, they were Jewish. They were born Jews. They were born with opportunity to come to know Christ personally. They didn't want it. Same thing happens today. We were born in a nation with opportunity. Some of you may have been born in a godly Christian home. As we have mentioned this numerous times out here, the greatest testimony is I was born in a Christian home, raised by Christian parents, and I accepted Jesus at an early age. It's the greatest testimony. Some of us were given numerous opportunities to know Christ personally at a young age. Some of you were also given that opportunity and you rejected. Some of you had gone to church most of your life and never really made a commitment to the Lord. Personal relationship with Christ. Some of you are really good about coming and filling a seat. I'm not trying to pick on anybody, and I'm not trying to step on toes. But the truth of the matter is, a lot of us are good at looking the way we're supposed to look. We're good at that. And before you think I'm being mean, I took my cues from Christ. Turn you full to John chapter 8. Because now this is our segue into this. Look at Christ's response. See, when Jesus started talking to the Jews, they started mentioning their past and their history and their spiritual accomplishments. Look at verse 31 of John 8. If you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed. If you know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. They answered, we are Abraham's descendants. They have never been in bondage to anyone. How can you say you will be made free? Look at the response. When Jesus tries to take them deeper, they say, we're Abraham's descendants. I'm a Jew. Why are you preaching to me? Same thing happens today, and once again, I don't mean to be rude, and I'm not trying to step on anybody's toes, but I, I hear it all the time. Start talking to someone about the Lord. It's like, are you a Christian? Yeah, I'm a Christian. Oh, neat, you're a Christian, yeah. How long have you been a Christian? I don't know. I mean, I've gone to church my whole life. Okay. Well, well when did you get saved? I don't know. I mean, I've just always gone to church my whole life, got, you know, fill in the blank, whatever denomination you're raised in. I got confirmed, I've been catechism, been baptized. Okay. I can tell right then that we're kind of not on the same wavelength. So I usually ask one time, oh, so, so when did you get saved? Now, usually when you ask that another time, usually one of two things happens. Number one, the, hopefully the good result is, I don't know what you really mean by that. Boom, opportunity. Second result is, they don't want to talk about it. <laughs> and so the door kind of closes and you kind of move on. 
problem is there are people that don't say, well, I am Abraham's descendants, because obviously we're not Jews. But they use that little Christian tag. I'm a Christian. I'm Abraham's descendants. And they're like, well, you're not getting this. Verse 34, most assuredly I say to whoever commits sin is a slave of sin. And as a slave does not obey, abide in the house forever, but a son abides forever. Therefore, if the son makes you free, you shall be free indeed. Jesus frees us from sin. Verse 37, I know that you are Abraham's descendants, but you seek to kill me because my word has no place in you. I speak what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have seen with your father. Look at the response, verse 39. They answered and said to him, Abraham is our father. So they keep going back to that. They're not getting it. Jesus is trying to tell them what it means to really be a believer in the Messiah, and they just keep going back to Abraham's our father. Abraham's our father. We're okay because we're Jews. We're okay because we inherited the law. We had the, as we just read a little bit ago, we had the adoption. We had the law. We had the glory. We have had all this. We're okay. Same thing happens today. I'm a Christian, but what does that mean to you? I don't know. I just has always been raised in the church. I'm just a Christian. You're not getting it. So look at what Jesus' response is, verse 39. Answer and said, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would do the works of Abraham. He says, if you're truly the followers of Abraham, you would know what that means to do the works of Abraham. Hence verse 40, but now you seek to kill me. A man who has told you the truth, which I heard from God, Abraham did not do this. You do the deeds of your father. He says, you're not a descendant of Abraham in the spirit. You're a descendant of Abraham in the flesh. Spiritually, you're ignoring the Messiah that is right in front of you. That's not what Abraham would do. Now, here's where it gets tough. Because for us to make a teaching point out of verse 39, guess what? We've got to be a little mean. Because the truth is, we wouldn't use this phrase, verse 39, if you were Abraham's children, you would do the works of Abraham. We would use the word Christian. Well, if you, you were a Christian, you would do the works of a Christian. See, what Jesus is doing in verse 39, he's not questioning them. He's not judging them. He's verifying. He says, you claim to be a descendant of Abraham. Well, the way I know you're a descendant of Abraham is a descendant of Abraham would do the works of Abraham, which is accept the Messiah. So for us, you claim to be a Christian. Okay, the way I'm going to verify you're a Christian is you will do the works of a Christian. So therefore, I will know you're a Christian. Now, whoa, wait a second. We can't talk about this because that's judging. That's looking at people and saying, I'm going to judge your life by your actions. And if your actions don't meet my standards of being a Christian, I don't think you're a Christian. No, that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying if you claim to be a Christian, that means your lifestyle will be a Christian lifestyle. That's a fact. I am verifying your claim by looking at your life. We went to the zoo earlier this week. So we went to the zoo. I showed them my little zoo pass. They said, I need to see your driver's license. I showed them my driver's license. Even the Toledo Zoo verifies who I am. The Toledo Zoo sometimes has more strict standards than churches. Because if you come in and say you're Christian, well, I can't question that. Because if I question that, I'm being judgmental. That's not being judgmental. I'm claiming to be a Christian in front of you. I hope my lifestyle backs that up. I hope when you look at me and my life and my marriage and my ministry that you say, yes, his lifestyle is backing up the claim that he's a Christian. So when someone claims to me and says, I'm a Christian, I'm a believer, then I will look at your lifestyle, not judging, not accusing, not attacking, but saying a Christian lifestyle follows the guidelines of the Bible. I'm telling you right now, there's a lot of people in this nation we live in that claim to be Christians that have no verifying lifestyle to back that up. That's a tough place to be. And you wonder why non-believing world thinks that Christians are the biggest hypocrites in the world. As we've said numerous times, there's a lot of people that claim to be a Christian that walk like the world, talk like the world, act like the world. There's nothing different about them. Now, before you think we're being a little rough here, Take it up with Jesus, because <laughs> I'm just quoting verse 39 right there. If you claim to be a follower, your works 
verify what you claim to be following. When I claim to be a Christian that says I'm Christ-like, I'm claiming to be a follower of Christ. Now before someone jumps on me and says, yeah, but no one's perfect, I know that. We all have moments and seasons in our life where we don't look very Christ-like. If I was a fly on the wall in your house or you were a fly on the wall in my house, we'd see moments that we would say, yuck. That's not what I expect out of a Christian. We all have moments like that. But you know what? Part of being a Christian is also understanding I am forgiven, I'm not perfect, and I'm moving forward in my relationship with Christ. Progress. Not being stale, not being stagnant, not treading water, but moving forward in my marriage with my kids, with my witness, with my ministry, everything moving forward. I think of when David committed adultery with Bathsheba. He wrote that great psalm afterwards. I'm telling you right now, adultery with Bathsheba and having her husband Uriah killed, then lying about it for a year, that's not very Christian. That's not very Christ-like. When David was confronted with this sin, he wrote Psalm 51, which is a great psalm about forgiveness and seeking God. But one of the things he said in that psalm was, you do not delight in burnt offerings or I would give it. What do you delight in? He goes, you delight in my heart. Remember what we said earlier? We want the happy heart. God isn't looking for us to jump through spiritual religious hoops. He's looking for us in our heart to be devoted to him. Jesus here talking to the Jews, he goes, yeah, I get it. You're Abraham's descendants. You're not following. You're not following at all. Because look at verse 40. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth, which I heard from God. Abraham did not do this. Jump into verse 42. If God were your father, you would love me, for I proceeded forth and came from God. Nor have I come of myself, but he sent me. Why do you not understand my speech? Because you're not able to listen to my word. Listen to verse 44. You are of your father the devil. Them are fighting words right there. You're of your father the devil? That, I mean... I don't know who taught Jesus how to grow a church. You don't tell people that your father is the devil. You don't. See, the thing is with Jesus, he's not in the kingdom building. He's not looking for a vast number of followers. He just wants people's hearts to be devoted to him. Truth of the matter is, some people's father is the devil. That's the truth. Now, before you think we're being mean, there's only two fathers you can have. You either have your heavenly father or your father of the devil. There, there is no middle ground. See, what happens is there's all these people that say, and they use the term agnostic. I just don't know. And they create this third realm. I'm really not the believer in Christ, but I don't really reject all of it. So I make this nice, comfy gray area. There is no gray area in Jesus Christ. By choosing to say, I don't know, you are choosing to say, I've looked at the facts and I'm not willing to commit. That's what you're really saying. Jesus makes it clear. Father of the devil or Father in heaven? Now guys, that's straightforward. That's stepping on some toes. But that's also truth. And Jesus keeps saying, look at verse 45, but because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Which of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? He who is of God hears God's word, therefore you do not hear because you are not of God. The way this ties into our Romans message, Romans chapter, I should say, these Jews chose to reject. Given opportunity, heard the words, Given the history of the Jews, they had the opportunity, they chose to reject, and so therefore they were children in the flesh, but not in the spirit. In their flesh, they were Jews. In their flesh, they went to the temple. In their flesh, they offered sacrifices. In their flesh, they followed the law. They never gave their heart to the Lord. Same thing still happens today. In our flesh, we serve at church. In our flesh, we do this reading. In our flesh, we do this or that. In our flesh, we jump through these religious hoops. Are we really saved? Do we really have that commitment and relationship with Christ? Isaiah wrote about this. Inasmuch as these people draw near me with their mouths and honor me with their lips, 
They remove their hearts far from me. Listen to that one more time. Inasmuch as these people draw near me with their mouths and honor me with their lips, they remove their hearts far from me. And many churches across the nation today, those churches are going to be full of people honoring God with their lips, honoring God with their mouths, but their heart will be far from them. Now, let's be fair. Maybe even at good old perfect Harvest Fellowship, there may be people honoring God with their lips, honoring God with their mouths, but their heart is far from them. See, we can all come, we can all look good, we can all put the spiritual face on. Let's just be honest. Are we where we're supposed to be spiritually? If we're not where we're supposed to be spiritually, God help us to get to where we're supposed to be spiritually. Not out of fear, not out of anger, not because Pastor James is trying to step on your toes. I don't want that. The last thing I want is for you to do anything spiritually because I'm forcing you. Because we want our heart to be where it's supposed to be. We want to have the happy heart. Lord, I want that. I desire that. Why is it so hard for us to do? We have two final passages to look at, and then we're going to be done. Mark 14, please. Two final passages here. Mark 14. Mark 14. Mark 14. Jesus is literally just hours away from being arrested and hours away from suffering on the cross. I use this term lightly, so don't jump on me, please. This is the closest you're going to see in the Bible to God needing us. So he's at his lowest moment, probably as a human, next to being on the cross. So what he does in verse 32, they said they come to a place, Mark 14, verse 32. They come to a place which is named Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took Peter, James, and John with him, and he began to be troubled and deeply distressed. I'm not saying this exactly, but the phrase comes up in my mind, misery loves company. Haven't you ever had a tough day and you need to talk to someone? You call them up and say, hey, I just need someone to talk to. You shoot them an email or text, I just need someone to vent to. You get home to your spouse, hey, can we just, I just had a bad day. That's okay, that's allowed. Jesus knows what's coming, so he brings Peter, James, and John with him. He wants that support. He wants that encouragement. Verse 34, and he said to him, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful, given to death. Stay here and watch. He went a little farther and fell on the ground, prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. Then he came and found them, what? Sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you sleeping? Could you not watch one hour less and pray lest you enter into temptation? The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. See, this is what happens when you're a son or a child of the flesh. Verse 38, your flesh is weak. In my flesh, I can't please God. In my flesh, I can't go deeper. And what happens is a lot of us, verse 37, Jesus wants us, Jesus desires us. We're sleeping. We're sound asleep spiritually. Now, you may say, well, I'm not sleeping. Look at what I'm doing. Sleepwalking. <laughs> As a lot of times people are asleep in their Christian walk with the Lord, and they're just not doing everything they can. I've had those moments where if you just looked at me, well, yeah, looks good. He's teaching, serving, doing hospital visits, praying with people. But I knew spiritually I just wasn't where I was supposed to be. I knew I wasn't giving everything over to the Lord. I knew I was just going through motions. I was asleep. Verse 39, again, he went away and prayed and spoke the same words. And when he returned, he found them asleep again, for their eyes were heavy. And look at this. They did not know what to answer him. Then he came the third time and said to him, Are you still sleeping and resting? It is enough. I look at verse 40, and that's me. I'm asleep sometimes, and I don't know what to answer him. But I don't know what to tell you. And I have plenty of excuses. Lord, the, the reason I haven't been really strong in my devotional lately is because, boy, the kids have just been busy. There's a lot of work going on at church. And, you know, I want to spend that time with the children. And, and so, therefore, when things settle down, that's just really an excuse. Boy, you know, things have been really rough at work. I've had so much extra overtime. I've been doing this and that. And so, therefore, when things settle down a little bit, I can, I can do this or that. Sounds good, but it's really just an excuse. Truth of the matter is, why do I sin? Have you ever made up an excuse to sin? That idea of, well, you know what? I didn't want to respond that angry. I didn't want to say those things. But you just kept pushing me and pushing me and pushing me. So therefore, you pushed me over the edge and I, and I said it. 
oh, so it's their fault that I lost my temper. That's an excuse. Really, the truth of the matter is, verse 40, we don't know what to say. We don't know how to answer them. The truth of the matter is, Lord, I sinned against you because I fell asleep spiritually. Lord, I sinned against you because when you wanted me to be watchful and awake and going deeper in my walk with the Lord, I was snoozing spiritually. I'm wrong for that. There is no excuse. When you constantly make excuses, you're not being honest. Lord, I fell asleep. Some of us are asleep for just moments. We have a spiritual sleep moment where we respond in the flesh. Lord, sorry about that. Some of us are asleep for maybe a few days, weeks, months. Some of us are sometimes asleep for years. And the Lord says it's time to get up. Look at verse 42. Rise. Get up. Because what happens is when you stay spiritually asleep, oh my, we miss what the Lord has in store for us. And our life is full of regrets. Our life is full of anguish and anger and disappointment. And it's not all that it could be. We don't have that abundant life that God wants. Problem is, some of us, we know people that are spiritually sleeping. You know how hard it is to wake somebody up that's sound asleep? Tough to do. I can't do it. Only the Lord can wake somebody up. And the truth of the matter is, have you ever been in that moment of where you know you should get up? I mean, you know you should get up. Boy, it feels good. One of the worst inventions ever is the snooze alarm. You know, you just hit it. Some people do that spiritually. Lord, I, I should get up. I should put more effort into this marriage. I should get up. Nope, snooze. Lord, I should really go over and share Christ with that guy. Nope, snooze. I'll do it tomorrow. You know what? I should really shut the TV off and just spend some time in prayer because I'm really worked up about this. Nope, snooze. Sometimes it feels good to sleep. Problem is, when we're sleeping, God's usually telling us to get up. We have all of eternity to rest. Now's our time to work. Last place I'm going to take you with this. Go to 1 Kings 18, please. This is what we're going to finish up with. Let's talk about sleep. Some of us spiritually sleep, so it feels good. Some of us spiritually sleep because of other reasons, maybe depression, maybe life. There's something that's called the sleep of depression, where you don't want to deal with life, you don't want to deal with events, so it's easier just to do nothing. What happens with those times? You have no reason to get up, you have nothing going on in life, so you just sleep all day, and then you wonder why you feel horrible because there's no accomplishment there's nothing to go deeper what happens when we get that way well elijah shows us here in first kings 18 you go from somebody having an amazing spiritual victory to a horrible spiritual defeat first kings 18 well what happens is in first kings 18 elijah takes on the prophets of baal and so what happens is they try to call fire down from heaven now there's a whole lot of points in this story and and we're just doing a very light touch on this story because boy if we could really go in depth on this it'd be great but we don't have time for that today so Long story short, Elijah calls fire down from heaven. He wins. Shows the prophets of Baal have no power. Elijah calls fire down from heaven. What a great spiritual victory. Well, the thing is, there's this drought going on. So he even goes one step further. Not only going to call fire down from heaven, it's not like I'm not even going to hit the home run to win the game. I'm going to call my shot. And so now, I'm going to make it rain. Verse 41, and Elijah said to Ahab, Go up, eat and drink, for there is the sound of abundance of rain. So Ahab went up to eat and drink, and Elijah went up to the top of Carmel. Then he bowed down on the ground and put his face between his knees, and he said to his servant, Go up now and look towards the sea. Now you have to realize this. Verse 41, when Elijah says it's going to rain, or I hear the sound of abundance rain, there was no rain. I'm not saying he was hearing things. There was no rain. That's faith. Now look at his prayer position here. I'm not trying to elevate one position of prayer over another. But verse 42, he bows down on the ground. He puts his face between his knees. This guy's in prayer. He's putting effort into this. Verse 43, go up now and look towards the sea. So he went up and looked and said, there is nothing. I'm praying for rain. I'm telling you, there's rain. I can hear the rain. Go look. Um, Elijah, there's no rain. Well, go look again. No rain. Go look again. No rain. Go look again. No rain. It goes on seven times. Finally, verse 44, came to pass the seventh time. He said, there was a cloud as small as a man's hand rising out of the sea. Now, how small is a cloud the size of a man's hand? Well, don't do it now because you'll hit the person in front of you, but just stick your hand out. It's about that big. That's all they saw. 
Now, he told the king that he heard rain. He told his servants seven times to go look for rain. Finally, they see this tiny little cloud. What a neat story of the power of prayer, of faith in dark times, of a strong witness. I mean, there's so many points to this, of just spiritual victory. So, verse 44, midway through. So he said, go up and say to Ahab, prepare your chariot and go down before the rain stops you. What rain? The rain that's in that tiny little cloud that is growing bigger and bigger and bigger. Verse 45, now it happened in the meantime, the sky became black with clouds and wind, and there was a heavy rain. So Ahab drove away and went to Jezreel. Then the hand of the Lord came upon Elijah, and he girded up his loins and ran ahead of Ahab to the entrance of Jezreel. Now look at this. Okay, look at his resume in, in chapter 18. Paul, fire down from heaven. Pretty impressive. Make a drought stop through rain. Pretty impressive. Then he outruns a chariot through the Spirit of the Lord. Verse 46. Pretty impressive. Is that not us sometimes? Spiritual victory, spiritual victory, spiritual victory. Things are going great. The marriage is good. The kids are good. The witness is good. The job is good. The devotional time is good. The service is good. Ministry is just going good. Then we have to start chapter 19. And Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had executed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, So let the gods do to me and more also if I do not make your life as a life of one of them by tomorrow about this time. When he saw that, he arose and ran for his life and went to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servants there. But he himself, on a day's journey into the wilderness, came and sat down under a broom tree, and he prayed that he might die. And he said, It is enough now, Lord. Take my life, for I am no better than my father's. Wow. Amazing spiritual victory followed by suicide thoughts. Boy, haven't we all been there at one time or another? Lord, just take my life. It's not worth it. I'm so sick and tired of this life. I'm done. I've had people tell me before, if I could just go to sleep tonight and not wake up tomorrow. I've had people go one step further, start planning stuff, go one step further, and start actually attempting and doing things. See, here's one of the little secrets that we don't like to talk about sometimes in the church. We all have moments where we just don't want to live. We all do. Elijah, I just want to die. How can he go from chapter 18, fire down from heaven, rain, outrunning a chariot, to now just kill me? Well, give credit where credit's due. I heard a teaching recently about this, and I want to build on this point. Look at verse 2. So let the gods do to me, and more also, if I do not make your life. Look at Jezebel's threat. Your life. Well, then what? look at verse 3. When he saw that he rose, he ran for his life. Then look at verse 4. It is enough now, Lord, take my life. See, your life, his life, my life. What happens is, when I start getting my eyes off my life, and I start thinking it's my life, I start getting depressed. This is not how I thought my life would be. This is not how I thought my marriage would be. This is not where I thought I would be at this stage of life. Well, that's very depressing. Good thing it's not my life. Wasn't one of the first points we learned in Romans that I'm a slave unto the Lord? It's not my life. If it was my life, I'd be depressed. This is not the job I wanted. This is not the marriage I wanted. These are not the kids I wanted. This is not the relationship I wanted. It's not about you. It's about the Lord. The Lord did amazing, miraculous things through Elijah. Fire. Rain, running. The only thing Elijah can do now is, verse 4, is find some broom trees, sit under it, and say, take my life. Like I have that life to give. Verse 5, that is, he lay and slept. See, now we bring it full circle. Spiritually asleep. Spiritually sleeping when Christ wanted them in the garden. Spiritually sleeping when the Lord wants us to go deeper. Spiritually sleeping when life is just too rough and I don't want to deal with it. What's the Lord's response every time we sleep? Verse 5, suddenly an angel touched him and said to him, arise and eat. Now, if I was this, I would say, get up. This would not be the tap on the shoulder. Hey, Elijah, Elijah, got some food for you, Elijah. Oh, dump some water on his head or something like that. I mean, come on, get up. And this is the problem. Sometimes in love, we have to go to that person that's spiritually asleep and say, get up, get up. So what happens? We get up, 
We try for a while, verse 6. He looked, and there by his head was a cake baked on coals and a jar of water. So he ate and drank, and what did he do in verse 6? Lay down again. Verse 7, the angel of the Lord came back the second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat. I should have looked up the word touch. Maybe it means punch. I don't know, but arise and eat because the journey is too great for you. See, verse 7, guys, life is too hard for you. It's too hard for you. You can't do it. You just can't do it. And so what's our response to life being too tough? Generally, the response to life being too tough is one of three options. Option one is I'm just going to sleep. I can't, I can't handle life. Forget this. I'm done. I, I, I quit. I'm just done. I'm tired. I'm just going to give up on life. That's Elijah. Option two is what I call the I. Well, I can do this. I can make it through this. I can fix my marriage. I can fix my kids. I can fix my job. I can fix this. But you can't fix it. As we said numerous times out here, if you could fix it, why did Jesus have to die on the cross? The last option, get up. Realize the Lord just made you a nice little meal. Verse 8, he arose. Eight. And drank. The Lord's there to nourish me. How's the Lord nourish me? Well, Jesus said he's the bread of life. He said he's the water of life. He helps me through those times. When I want to sleep my spiritual life away, God says, get up. When I want to be like Israel and squander every opportunity given to me, God looks at me and says, listen, you're in the flesh. You need to be in the spirit. When I want to just quit and be done, the Lord says, I'm not going to let you do that. When I want to lose my temper at non-believers and say, forget them, the Lord says, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked. It's amazing when you study out this chapter, you just start realizing how much love God has for us. So I don't know where you're at today. Maybe the point today that hit you was those non-believers, God loves them. And instead of praying for strength for us, let's pray for salvation for them. Number two, maybe you're in that spot of you were spiritually sleeping a little bit. Time to get up. Don't hit the snooze. Time to get up. Let's make those changes that need to be made. And if you don't know what changes to make, if you don't know what to do, this is why we're here. We're here to help you, encourage you, and point you in the right direction. I will not throw water on your face, I promise. But I will be honest with you. We need to keep moving forward. Not because we have to. Not out of threat of violence, but out of a happy heart of, Lord, I want everything you have in store for me. I want things to be different. Here's the thing, and I'm just going to say this as the final point. A lot of times we sit here and say this and say, yes, that's right. I want things to be different. And we leave this church, we're pumped, we're excited. Then we get home, and what do we do? The exact same things we've always done. And we wonder why life doesn't change. If you want life to be different, that means spiritual changes need to be made. I wish I could tell you what those changes were, but for each person, it's unique and individual. I don't know. Once again, if you want to talk about it, I can't stress you enough. This is why we're here. We love you and we care for you. But guys, let's not be spiritually asleep anymore. So if you want to come forward here for the final song, just some quick reminders for you as we get ready to close up here. Prayer quilt in the kitchen.